Every now and then, a patient safety issue rears its head and gets some much-needed and overdue attention. That might be the case with diagnostic errors in medicine, which it's now estimated impact 1 in 20 of us every year. Now, part of the challenge with confronting the problem could be that it's multifaceted, everything from an incorrect diagnosis to a delay in patients obtaining a diagnosis to a delay in communicating test results to the failure to effectively coordinate the process so everyone has the complete picture. Now, the creation of reliable systems can surely help, but that needs to start with a better understanding of the nature of the gaps to begin with. There is no choice with this issue except to dive in, and that's what we're going to do on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you biweekly and also on demand via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. We've talked about diagnostic errors before on WIHI, tapping into the good work of the Society to improve diagnosis in medicine and other initiatives. We're prompted to do so this time in part because of the Institute of Medicine report, Improving Diagnosis in Healthcare, which was released just this past September. Two of the report's authors are with us today to help us unpack the situation. IHI is also gearing up to help systems do better in this space. So let's get right to introductions. But first, here's IHI's John Gothier. He has some reminders about how to make the most of your time with us today. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, just a few items to point out to help everybody make the, today, the most of today's program. On the right of our screen is the chat window. And if you've tuned into WI China before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions. So make sure that your questions and comments are directed at all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connection, connected to WI today. If you're logged onto your computer and listening to WIHI by streaming audio coming through your speakers or headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat, but a simple solution to any hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. We have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I've provided the direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by the guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they will send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we could use your help for that. Please take some time after the program to fill out our very quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Matt. All right. Thanks a lot, John. And we're going to turn to chat and your comments and questions at about the halfway mark of the show. We also welcome your tweets during and after the program. And thanks for including at the IHI in your tweets so others can get involved in the conversation. All right. We're going to turn to introductions. They're brief. There are longer introductions on our website and on the bio slides that you'll see on the screen. And a reminder, if anyone is joining uh, by phone only and isn't looking at the computer screen as we are, don't forget you can get all the materials uh, from info at IHI.org. Just email them. All right, joining us by phone, we have Mark Graber. He is a senior fellow at RTI International and professor emeritus of medicine at the State University of New York at Stony Brook and president of the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Madge. Pleasure to be here. Wonderful. Also by phone, we've got Thomas Gallagher. He's a general internist and professor and associate chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of Washington, where he's also professor in the Department of Bioethics and Humanities. Dr. Gallagher's research includes looking at error disclosure. Welcome, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Fantastic. Rounding out our phone people, we've got Kedar Mate. He is a senior vice president at IHI, responsible for research and development, innovation, and faculty. He's an internal medicine physician and also an assistant professor of medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College. Glad you're here, Kedar. 
Thank you, man. It's a pleasure to be with you. Okay, and here in the studio with me right across the way is Jennifer Linochi edwards She's the director of the Patient Safety Focus Area at IHI. Jennifer is currently focusing with some others here on safety across the system with reliability at the core. Welcome, Jennifer. Glad to be in the studio, Matt. All right, fantastic. All right, we're going to go right to Jennifer. Uh, you and Kadar and IHI's Frank Federico, uh, and I have to say I'm sure Mark and Tom, too, since they were part of the uh, committee and drafting of this report, we eagerly anticipated uh, this report that came out from the Institute of Medicine in September. So I've given you the task of reminding WIHI listeners of some of the key findings uh, and as a way of also saying what stood out for you. And um, I'm keep being curious whether this information was actually brand new uh, to the field. Uh, thanks, Jennifer. Great. Thank you so much. So I get the pleasure of getting folks up to speed in about three minutes here. So we're going to... Oh, four. Okay, four, four minutes. Five, Sounds yeah. great. So this was a fantastic landmark paper that really um, evaluated the current research to date in diagnostic error and really brought about some um, interesting thinking. Um, the diagnostic error definition that the um, IOM or the National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine um, uh, defined uh, diagnostic error as the failure to establish an accurate and timely explanation of the patient's health problem or communication to the explanation of the patient. And they estimated that one in 20 patients will experience a diagnostic error in the outpatient setting in their lifetime. Um, so what they what they determined were eight key directives, and um, so a lot of them are things that we've heard in patient safety before. So thinking about um, more effective teamwork um, in the diagnostic process as it relates to healthcare professionals, patients, and their families, um, enhancing the professional education and training programs and diagnostic process. Um, the IT system came up, as it always does, um, in thinking about how to support diagnostic error for patients and the healthcare professionals that are using these systems. Developing the learning system, which we talk about uh, very much in the patient safety team, to um, identify, learn from, and reduce diagnostic errors and near misses in the clinical practice. Establishing the work system and the culture that supports diagnostic process. And thinking about reporting environment and medical liability systems that that facilitate, facilitate diagnosis through, um, again, that learning system. And the last two were thinking about payment and care delivery structures that support diagnostic processes and dedicated funding for research on diagnostic process. So a lot of these things are things we've heard in patient safety before, but to be able to tie it to diagnostic error is actually a very um, interesting and a new approach. I think there were four key things that resonated for the patient safety team. Um, the first thing is that it really brought about some urgency to deeply understand and develop better systems to assess the harms that are happening outside of the acute care setting. So for many years, we've developed fantastic concepts in the acute care setting, and it's clear that we need a more cross-continuum approach that includes diagnostic um, in, in the build. Um, the report provides a general definition of diagnostic error, and the numbers are very concerning. Um, the data suggests that the events are not necessarily associated with rare conditions, but instead more common conditions. And I found myself wondering whether or not there was a way to prioritize some sort of mechanism to focus clinicians' attention on certain diagnostic areas that have more harm potential. So two other things. So when we hear about systems, um, you know, one thing that comes to mind um, are test results. And if you sit down with a provider, and I've been out there um, working with frontline providers to say, let's sit down and look at test results and how we improve that, it's it's really not a simple is not as simple as, as, as it sounds. And so if you look at those, the slide um, that we're talking about here, there's six discrete steps to just better test result management. So did the patient get the test? Did the test come back? Did the patient did the team review the test? Did the physician interpret? Did the physician order the correct test? And then was it finally communicated to the patient? And I think that um, it's not easy to digest and definitely not easy to improve um, in all its parts. And then the last thing is that if I'm a primary care physician and I'm reading this report, I want to know what can I do tomorrow with my team to actually decrease my chances of a diagnostic error. And I think improvement science can make a huge impact to, um, to create patient-centered, team-driven, reliable system design. So and I took up more minutes than I should, but that's what I think. 
<laughs> we were not counting seconds, I promise you. Excellent. Thank you, thank you Jennifer. And uh, uh, we'll definitely, I want to remind everybody, all the slides that you see here get posted to the website tomorrow, and you can also download them uh, when we get off the show today. You'll see you're prompted, and uh, John put in a link as well. All right, thanks, Jennifer. Good setup now for Mark Graber, uh, thinking about systems, which is something uh, he and his colleagues uh, that have been working hard on this. And Mark, the thing that strikes me about diagnosis um, and everything that either can be done right or possibly go wrong is that it's often this very live process over a number of days or weeks, a number of providers, there may be technicians involved, or referrals and tests are involved, a number of different settings. So we do not have one time and place uh, such as a surgery where things can either, we hope, go right or go wrong. Um, but we have many different uh, possibilities of where there could be a dropped ball. And I'm wondering if this is one of the ways that providers, physicians, nurses, others involved, uh, staff, need to be thinking about diagnosis to better appreciate all the opportunities, unfortunately, for harm. Thanks, Mark. Hi, Madge. Absolutely. Well, first, let me thank Jennifer for condensing a 400-page uh, report <laughs> into uh, five minutes of really cogent remarks. Um, and, you know, it really is hard to imagine anything more complex than diagnosis. I mean, you're right. It takes place over time, and there's uncertainty at every single step. One thing that's really wonderful, I think, about the IOM report is that it describes diagnosis as a process. And that's good news for us in healthcare and in safety because we're used to process improvement. If we can break something down into the steps and focus on each one of those steps, that's a wonderful way to break a really complicated problem into something that's much more approachable. So uh, we were delighted to, to see that uh, the report presented us with a new framework for understanding diagnosis. It starts off with all the cognitive things that go on uh, between the patient and the physician and the immediate uh, team that's in, in charge of the diagnostic process, but it, it acknowledges that that's all taking place inside of our really complicated healthcare systems, which are getting more complicated by the day. Yeah, thanks for pulling up this slide. So that circle that you see there is actually a spinning wheel. There's so many things taking place as the physician tries to incorporate what the patient is telling us and what we're learning from from our consults and from our laboratory testing and hopefully ultimately it will result in the correct diagnosis but our success is so dependent on our system and you can see some of the factors outlined there are, are who else is on our team who's helping us uh, what's my work culture like what's my environment like how many patients do I have to see today how much time do I have with this patient how easy is it for me to get a hold of a consultant? So there's, you know, literally hundreds of factors that are going to have input on the success of the diagnostic process. But this opens the door to, you know, thinking about, well, what are the simple things I can do to try and improve my chances of things going right? And we think there's a lot of things that, you know, things you could just really just do tomorrow that would help you. And, and some of these are cognitive. I think Tom's going to talk about some of these, getting the patient to help you out and be your partner. But on the cognitive side, yeah, thanks. You know, it's really just a matter of, of stopping to think and take a little diagnostic time out. The most common reason for a diagnostic error, at least on the cognitive side, is that people just don't think of the correct diagnosis. Wow, I just didn't think of that. Um, but that takes a little time. You have to have a few minutes to stop and reflect, which could be so important. And I think, uh, I think one of the surprising things in the report or one of the things I've learned in the course of studying diagnostic error is how often diagnostic errors arise in situations where you're just absolutely sure that you've got everything correct. Somebody walks in and you recognize what they have and, and you move on to the next patient. That patient is at risk for a diagnostic error because you didn't stop and think. You trusted your intuition, and we now know that intuition is wonderful and it's right almost all the time, but it's not uh, right 100% of the time, and we really need to watch out for those ways where our intuition can trip us up. But turning over to the system things, there's several things I'd like to just mention quickly. One is to take advantage of second opinions. There's just nothing like having someone with fresh eyes to take a look at a case and to give you an independent analysis of what they think is going on. And we think we could 
do a much better job um, uh, getting more second opinions in medicine. We think we should consult our peers more regularly. We'd like to see patients ask for second opinions more regularly. All those things might help. Secondly, there are lots of tools now that can help us put together a differential diagnosis, and that's one of the most effective things we could do to prevent those diagnostic errors that arise from just really quickly arriving at a diagnosis that seems obvious. If you stop and try and be comprehensive and try and construct a differential diagnosis, that's a wonderful way to combat that problem. You've already alluded to how important it would be to follow up on tests and consults, and that's uh, one of the things I like about the new IOM definition of diagnostic error. It emphasizes that communicating the diagnosis to the patient is part of the process, and we know that diagnostic errors, like every other patient safety problem, communication is often the number one problem. Another simple thing that could be added to your list is if you're going away, make sure somebody's going to look at your lab results. Uh, those patients are definitely at risk if they have lab tests outstanding. Now, I'd also like to point out that it's not just the patients in ambulatory care that it's at risk. It's the ones who are just in the hospital and got discharged. There's data that maybe a quarter or even a third of people coming out of hospital will have test results that aren't back yet, and a substantial fraction of those will get lost and fall between the cracks. Another thing I'd like to recommend, uh, very simple to do, just takes a few minutes, if we have that few minutes, hopefully, is to actually talk to the radiologists and the pathologists who are giving us their reports. Uh, we've gotten used to just reading these, and it's great that we can see all these on our electronic medical records, but I can promise you that the radiologists and the pathologists know five times as much that they, than what they put in their written report, and the conversations you can have can just be so valuable to both of you in terms of trying to come up with the right diagnosis. And finally, as we're starting to move into the uh, era of electronic medical records, uh, many people are struggling with this, but in each one of these EMRs, there are tricks that help you and save you time, but it requires an investment of your time to learn those tricks. And I'd just like to advocate for taking the time to do that, because the more comfortable you are with your electronic medical record system, the happier that you'll be using it, and the more it can help you arrive at the right diagnosis. All right. Thanks a lot, Mark. <laughs> As always, panelists do an amazing job at condensing a lot of information. I think these are really helpful. We could probably do a show on every single one of these uh, points. I want to just ask you very quickly, I think if uh, most patients and families um, are often encouraged or think about the fact of getting second opinions, but they don't think of uh, their doctors uh, seeking second opinions, uh, kind of behind the scenes there. Um, is that not a very common practice? Uh, and you're suggesting it needs to be more so. Oh, yeah, I think it happens all the time, but I'd like to see it happen even more. Just to talk to, to other people around you and uh, have them take a fresh look at a case. It can be so valuable. Okay, thanks a lot. All right, well, this is a good moment. Thanks, Mark. It's a good moment to mention. Uh, John, maybe throw up here a couple of screenshots. We went kind of overboard uh, with some things that Mark sent us. There are there are three panels here. They're from the uh, back page of an article uh, Mark wrote for Inside Medical Liability. You'll have these slides for your reference, and there are steps uh, that uh, physicians can take, steps that patients, steps, excuse me, that uh, patients can take, and steps that uh, healthcare organizations can take. Uh, and we also uh, captured top myths about diagnostic errors uh, held within healthcare systems. These were things we got from uh, the very rich website from the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine. So you'll have these all to, for your reference and to think about, and maybe you can even look at them over and think about them for our Q&A. And talking about some of Mark's points there about uh, encouraging feedback uh, from patients and families and working with patients and families as partners in the diagnostic process. This is a good segue for you, Tom Gallagher. So we're seeing or we're hearing that the diagnostic process can benefit from activated patients uh, and healthcare staff who welcome the engagement. That isn't always the case, uh, but that's what we're working on. Uh, 
and part patients and families are a fountain of information because anyone who's awaiting a diagnosis and a test result does not tend to forget uh, where they are in the process. And yet it isn't always clear if there are delays or somebody offers you a diagnosis that doesn't sound right what you should do about it and how to really intervene in a way that you're going to be heard. So uh, any thoughts on that, uh, Tom, as we get that uh, slice uh, from you? Thanks a lot. Well, thanks, Madge. Uh, the IOM report really is, I think, loaded with critical information, much of which may surprise patients uh, about how the diagnostic process happens and ways to improve it. As we've heard, one of the report's overarching themes is just that, that diagnosis isn't an isolated event, but, but instead is a complex process, and, and a process, importantly, that's a team sport with the, the patient as a, as a critical team member. I think many of my patients think of diagnosis as, as relatively black and white. Either the patient has the disease or they don't. And they also think that their role is pretty minimal, just providing information on their symptoms that their doctor can interpret. As Mark was mentioning, some diagnoses are, are straightforward, but, but much more often the correct diagnosis evolves as the patient interacts with multiple providers, has diagnostic tests and procedures, and all of that information has to be synthesized and interpreted. The, the more that a patient knows about this process and the more involved they can be, the more likely the diagnosis is to be accurate and communicated effectively back to the patient. But it's really the obligation of the healthcare system and of providers to think clearly about, well, how can we educate patients uh, about the diagnostic process and about their, their role in it? There, are, there have been a lot of tools that have been developed to help patients participate in diagnosis, and they're highlighted in the report such as Kaiser's um, Smart Checklist. I think we really ought to encourage our patients to use these tools. I do think some patients are nervous about whether providers might find these visit preparation tools off-putting, but, but the opposite's the case. Clinicians really welcome partnerships with informed and engaged patients, and we should communicate that explicitly and directly to our patients. We also should let patients know that, that diagnostic errors are more common at specific points during their healthcare experience. So for example, when a transition in care occurs, such as being discharged from the hospital and having your care resumed by your primary care physician, that's an especially high risk time for diagnostic errors. So priming patients to ask their outpatient provider if they have reviewed their hospital records, especially if the patient had tests in the hospital and had not yet gotten the results back, can be especially helpful. One other tool that the report mentions that I wanted to highlight that I hope all patients are using is open notes. Um, most healthcare institutions now have programs like open notes that allow patients access to their electronic health records Open Notes helps patients view their test results, their visit notes, their medication list, and on multiple occasions, my patients have used Open Notes to correct misinformation in the medical record and to share their questions, avoiding diagnostic errors. Well, not only does the report contain important information about getting the right diagnosis, it also addresses the challenging area of what do we do when a breakdown in diagnosis occurs. As you've heard, the reality is that despite everyone's, everyone's best efforts, breakdowns in diagnosis happen far too frequently. And in fact, the report suggests that one of the reasons why improving diagnosis in healthcare has been so difficult is our inability to respond and to learn when diagnostic errors occur. And this is also an area where increasing patient engagement is key. Research by us, us and others has suggested that patients frequently think a significant breakdown has happened in their care, and often those perceived breakdowns involve the diagnostic process. But the big problem is many of those patients don't report their concerns 
to the healthcare team or the institution. In, in one of our studies, we found 25% of cancer patients thought a serious breakdown had occurred, yet only 10% of those had reported their concern. And there are lots of reasons why speaking up about concerns can be hard for patients, since such as they don't, just don't feel well or there are challenges with health literacy. But the most common reason we found that patients didn't share their concern was a fear that raising their hand might adversely affect their care, and patients just weren't willing to take that chance. However, healthcare institutions and providers, we obviously can't address patient concerns that we don't know about. So part of the solution involves giving patients more tools for sharing concerns. Here again, initiatives like Open Notes can be an easy way for patients to report a possible care problem. Patient advocates or ombudsmen can also be a useful resource for patients who think that something has gone wrong in their care. But, but ultimately, again, as I mentioned at the outset, I think the responsibility falls more on healthcare institutions and providers uh, to encourage patients to share their concern, um, but not in a way where it's just giving patients the message that they need to speak up. Um, providers should be letting patients know explicitly that we're eager to hear their questions or concerns, especially if the patient thinks something may have gone wrong. It's really our responsibility as providers to create an environment in which patients feel comfortable expressing concerns, confident that if they raise their hand, it's going to lead to a real-time response both to their need but also one that fixes any underlying system problem that contributed to the breakdown. That's what patient-centered care really looks like. And finally, the report highlights communication and resolution programs, or CRPs, as an important and patient-centered approach that healthcare institutions and insurers can use for responding to diagnostic errors. Rather than the traditional deny and defend strategy, CRPs focus on transparent and open communication with patients about what happened, analysis of the adverse event to identify the systemic causes, proactive offers of compensation who were, for patients who were harmed by inappropriate care, and disseminated learning. CRPs at their core are, are patient safety initiatives, not risk management tools that emphasize meeting the needs of the injured patient and fixing the problem to prevent recurrences. So patients and providers alike should encourage their institution to implement a CRP if one is not already in place and to use this approach when care doesn't go as expected. So in summary, getting the right diagnosis is a process. It's a process undertaken by teams with the patient as a critical member. And patient engagement can help not only ensure the right diagnosis is made and communicated, but it can also help respond to and learn from those situations in which diagnostic errors have happened. Thank you so much, uh, Tom. A lot of uh, stuff in, in your remarks there, and hopefully people can pick up on some of those themes uh, as soon as we get to Q&A and our, our chat. Some folks have already uh, put in uh, some thoughts about uh, the difficulties and the challenges often for patients uh, speaking up, as Tom was referring to, being labeled as problem patients, uh, et cetera. That is across the board with an awful lot of issues relevant for diagnostic errors as well. Kadar, uh, you're there, I know, because we spoke to you <laughs> just before the show, <laughs> and 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 uh, you signed in early on there. Um, thinking, uh, Tom mentioned open notes. That, of course, uh, brings up the topic of uh, technology and perhaps shared views of uh, medical records. Um, we asked you on this program to give us some of your thoughts about how we should be looking at technology, electronic health records in particular, to help address gaps we're talking about today that lead to diagnostic errors. We want to see how technology can serve our improvement goals uh, and not just shoehorn in our improvement goals to what the technology enables. Thanks for some of your thoughts. Yeah, thanks, Madge. Um, well, let me let me keep this relatively brief because I'd love to get to the conversation. But 
Um, I, health information technology and technology plays uh, a few kind of central and critical roles in diagnosis. Uh, first of all, uh, often these days it's the system that we use to capture diagnostic information, whether it's from the patient history or from the physical exam or uh, laboratory information or otherwise, but it's a way of, first of all, capturing information that might be relevant to making a diagnosis. It then aids in the movement of that information, uh, the exchange of information between providers and, uh, and in particular between providers and patients, as Tom just highlighted with the use of open notes and other similar technologies. And then finally, it, uh, technology often aids in the construction uh, of the differential diagnosis. Uh, it helps to provide that uh, second opinion that Mark was referring to and helps to kind of uh, uh, potentially helps to uh, help with the cognitive bias of I just you know, as physicians sometimes encounter of, I just didn't think of that. You know, technology can play that role. Uh, overall, I think that technology and electronic health records in particular can both aid in the diagnostic process and it can they can impede the diagnostic process. So both a blessing and a curse in some ways. On the positive side, I think health information systems uh, help to manage the now enormous volume of clinical information and uh, that we face as clinicians on a daily basis with the care of our patients. It also helps with the cognitive load. There's so many things that we have to keep in our minds nowadays about uh, about the clinical details and about the preferences and ideas that, uh, that patients have about what, what progress they want to make. Uh, technology can aid in decision support, aid in timely access to information, improve communication, as I mentioned a moment ago, between providers and between providers and their patients and families, and provide necessary feedback loops in a largely post-autopsy era um, that we live in uh, these days. Uh, it, it, we often don't know as clinicians whether or not we got the diagnosis right. And well-designed electronic systems and technology-based systems can help us uh, as providers to grow and become smarter clinicians down the line by virtue of learning uh, about whether the appropriate diagnosis was made. Um, on the negative side, on uh, I think information systems can can obfuscate or obscure and make information difficult to retrieve and uh, poorly designed and uh, poor interfaces uh, for electronic systems can really impede the ability for clinicians to find uh, the relevant information that they need to actually make an effective diagnosis. And they can, in fact, make things very difficult um, in terms of uh, communication between providers and between providers and patients. So three, three areas that I wanted to just comment on very briefly uh, that I think are places where electronic systems are making some progress uh, these days, and we've already heard about some of these in the previous uh, comments from uh, Jennifer, Mark, and Tom. Um, there are some good examples of technologies that are becoming integrated into electronic systems to allow for fact-checking and diagnostic checking. Um, we mentioned Isabel and DX Explain and visual diagnosis and human diagnosis. These are uh, technologies that are being built, some built into the clinical record, some sitting as secondary sources, and they're ways for, uh, for in essence, for clinicians to get a, uh, a machine-based or a computer-generated second opinion or, or consultative advice on the differential diagnosis. Uh, another one that's become uh, increasingly uh, has gathered a lot of media attention is IBM's Watson, uh, which is now being applied in certain emergency departments in, in New York and elsewhere in the country. Uh, these are not substitutes for clinical reasoning. They're ways for uh, clinicians to think more thoroughly about the differential diagnosis and add to the way um, uh, that we construct our differentials. Uh, these are not far off from our future. They're, they're here today, and they're uh, becoming more and more useful and impactful for our work. We're also seeing at a population level um, automated error detection systems. These are ways of analyzing electronic information, electronic health record information, to spot uh, failures of diagnosis or delays at a population level. And there's data dashboards, some you know, constructed in Kaiser Permanente, um, among other systems that have allowed medical practices to see at a population level uh, diagnostic tests and or the absence of those tests and whether or not uh, follow-up was made and a, and a diagnosis made. And then the final thing I would say is that I think overall, and this, this report goes a long way, the IOM report goes a long way to doing something very important for improvers, uh, which is to make the invisible visible. Uh, you know, this is a hard area to quantify, diagnostic error 
not an easy thing for us to get our arms around and really know how to quantify and, and learn about. But we're making steady progress, I think, and technology can enable this progress to help make the invisible more and more measurable and visible. And once we have a system that we can measure, we can start to apply the tools of modern management science and quality improvement to start eliminating defects and processes that are failing across the system. So uh, those are ways I think that technology is really helping us and potentially impeding and also ways in which I think it interfaces with improvement science and work, the work we're trying to do in improvement. Thank you so much, uh, Kadar, and all our panelists for laying out quite a bit of information. Uh, and you, our listeners, have begun to chat in some of your thoughts and questions. Uh, John, just a quick reminder to everybody about the chat. Yep, all chat can be put to in the sent, excuse me in the send to bar down in the chat. Make sure that it's uh, addressed to all participants. That way, everything that you say will be read by all participants. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks a lot, John. <laughs> it stands to reason. <laughs> it does. <laughs> it does. Lachlan Paro, I want to acknowledge you on the program today and your thoughtful comment that we are indeed at some level looking at sort of the biomedical diagnosis issue here, uh, which is not necessarily the same as uh, somebody with an advanced il illness or uh, we may be too narrowly defining even what the problem is and uh, sort of remembering to have that hat on of what matters to you uh, as opposed to only what's the matter and I appreciate uh, your contributing some of your thinking on that in terms of how we're approaching uh, any interaction uh, with a patient so wh who that patient is and what's really going on uh, matters a great deal. I want to uh, I think, Cater, I'm just going to stay with you for one second because of a particular question, and maybe, Mark, you might want to weigh in on this as well. An ongoing theme, I think, every time we talk about electronic health records are it seems to be that information may be being captured, but people can't seem to find it as easily or as readily uh, as they might want to. And uh, Johan, uh, I hope I pronounced your name correctly, has written in, they don't necessarily know where to look for the uh, the most uh, important information, uh, lab results, all those things. Any thoughts on that? And then maybe, Mark, you might have some thoughts as well. Well, I mean, this is exactly what I was saying uh, in my remarks. I mean, I think blessing and, and potential curse with uh, electronic systems, you know, I think uh, these systems can really, really help us uh, if we know exactly how to process the information, if we can find the the materials that are necessary to make appropriate or better diagnoses, uh, but if they're not designed well, if they if they're not designed uh, using kind of human factors and human-centered design principles, uh, and if the retrieval and arrangement of information is difficult, if clinicians have trouble finding information that's necessary to make a diagnosis, and then being able to integrate that information well. Um, I think it, you know it, it stands to reason that you'd have uh, we'd have a lot of trouble uh, to make uh, effective and good diagnoses. There, there was a really good paper written um, uh, some some time ago now um, around you know how opportunities for reducing diagnostic error uh, with electronic systems. Uh, Gordy Schiff and David Bates wrote the paper in New England Journal in 2010, and very good kind of uh, guidance around the design of electronic systems. Um, and, and how they should be formulated in order for uh, more effective and uh, ease of, of retrieval of information and better diagnosis. So there's some good guidance out there already. Thank you very much. Uh, Mark, any thoughts on that? I, oh, yeah, sure, man. Yeah. Plenty. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, how about a few? It's absolutely true that, that finding data uh, can be a real challenge in today's medical records. They find the most interesting places to hide results. Uh, sometimes it's in places you never think of, of looking to, to find a pulmonary function test or a cardiology ultrasound result. And there's another problem. There's, there's, there's too much data now that we have EMRs, and we're just kind of drowning in this sea of data and this copy-paste notes. So we really have a long way to go to, um, to develop really intelligent EMRs that find all the data we need but don't overwhelm us with data that we don't need. And absolutely, I agree with uh, Kadar that 
recommendations from Rob Alcare and Gordy Schiff in their paper are just terrific in terms of where we need to go uh, in terms of developing those systems. We'll track down that article. I do recall it as well. And if we don't get it into the chat, we'll definitely get it into our resource document that gets posted to our website. Um, Jen, I think I want to turn to you uh, around at least s- some of these issues which have to do – so people are talking a little bit about measuring and trying to understand what is the nature of the problem, uh, either in my unit, in my organization, at my clinic. Uh, there was just a viewpoint uh, in JAMA, Elizabeth McGlynn and others talking about the very nascent state of research and measurement uh, on di- in diagnostic errors. So it makes one wonder how come so nascent, uh, but we do keep saying it's a starting place. You have to know exactly kind of what what's not working in your own organization. Sure, and and I think that um, the most the, the the piece that um, is the biggest driver for me is that if we don't have data, we actually can't do any type of improvement. So so we've been, you know, IHI, our patient safety team, has been thinking very deeply about what are appropriate proxy measures for delayed um, diagnoses that potentially cause harm. And so, you know, if you um, if you actually pull up the model um, that is created by Hardeep Singh and Dr. Graber, um, right, it's we'll a go beautiful back to model. That. Yeah. Um, there is a, um, an even... in more in-depth model that talks about the things that are swirling in that circle, and they talk about, um, you know, the um, the referral process, test result process, and if you if you actually think about the pieces that are. Um, that are improvable and you look at the reliability when within your systems and how those potentially could impact delayed diagnosis so i'm just going to go back to test results because it's the it's the easiest thing it's the easiest example so if you think about your office practice and you know that you are not hitting those six steps with 95 percent reliability there's an opportunity for improvement there can we absolutely tie that to delayed diagnosis today no we can't because we actually can't measure the number of delayed diagnoses that are happening in your practice. Could we use that reliability function as a proxy measure for, you know, assuming that that is going to impact your numbers? I I think that that is a f- kind of a viable thought. Um, and you can apply that to referrals. You can a- apply that to access. You can apply that to kind of, you know, reliability of evidence-based practices. We've also been talking about um, whether or not actually assessing the patient's confidence in the diagnosis. So you know, we were we were kind of kicking the tires on this with the team and saying, you know, if you were to ask a patient when they were going out the door, what type of confidence do you have that your provider actually gave you the right diagnosis? That might be really interesting feedback to, to, to develop that learning system for providers because providers really don't get a good sense of what am I a good diagnostician? Are you am I a terrible diagnostician? I don't really know. And actually, the key is actually being able to take the time to um, assess that information and actually, you know, take it as positive feedback to help you kind of build that out. So I don't have a really fantastic answer. I'm just, we're thinking about proxy measures that will help us um, better understand how frontline clinicians can tackle the problem as, as in, rela- in, re- in regards to improvement. Okay, very, very good. Um, putting up, thanks, Jen. We're putting up some of the references. We'll track down some others. We've got a, a comment uh, re- referring to a unifying framework for managing global public health events is also needed. Talking about diagnostic issues related to uh, Ebola and tuberculosis, I think that's, of course, very relevant. I'm sure we could uh, we can keep expanding uh, out here. Um, I think I want to ask uh, maybe Mark if we could return to you and Tom. Well, maybe Tom. Let me start with you about the sort of whole learning system. This is something Jennifer and I have talked about. To what extent uh, uh, clinicians and others are getting sort of real-time feedback? Uh, you talked about sort of various measures and, and patient confidence being the latest one you mentioned. But to what extent providers are getting any kind of real-time feedback on what's going on in their own uh, entities as far as diagnostic delays or drop balls with test results or anything? Thing that might, harm that might have come to somebody as a result of a delayed diagnosis. Um, I know that's one of the things the IOM report pointed to. Uh, do we have examples of organizations that are starting to get to this? Tom, let me start with you. 
Well, we, we know from our and other research that, you know, providers don't get nearly the feedback that they're looking for about the quality of care they're delivering in general and the accuracy of their diagnoses in particular. And I think some of the solutions that you've been, been hearing about around measurement and, and IT will help point the, the way forward in one sense. But in the other sense, you know, part of what we've learned is that there are some cultural barriers within the profession to sharing feedback with colleagues, uh, especially if you think something might have gone wrong. Um, uh, you know, uh, call, uh, physicians in particular feel very anxious about having a conversation with their colleague about a possible diagnostic error they might have made, and, and we need to, as a, as a, you know, as healthcare providers generally figure out ways to have those conversations with one another about quality problems. So that feedback, I think, will come in part through measurement and information technology, but hopefully it'll also come from transforming the culture to make it easier to um, share our experiences and concerns with, with colleagues. Okay, thanks. Jennifer, I think I want to throw up your, I'm going to put up a slide that Jennifer created, especially <laughs> for today's program, because we're doing a lot of thinking aloud. That's part of, you know, we love it when WIHI is actually part of the development of uh, how we can begin to dig in, and we wanted to theme this WIHI as figuring out points where we can dig in. So this is uh, this slide, John, Improvement Science Applicability. And uh, Jen, just talk with us sure. a bit for about it for a sure. few minutes. Sure. So this yep. is, this is you guys are going to have to bear with me and don't fall asleep. Yes, I'm showing data at right after lunch here. So, um, so I think um, the item to the left is a run chart. So it's a run chart. You know, we, if you're familiar with IHI, familiar with improvement, it's something that we use all the time. This is in the acute care setting. It's a defect that we're very aware of. We're of um, hospital-acquired VTE, and that is the pink line. So we're tracking, you know, numbers of cases of VTE. And the bluish line or black line appears on this screen um, is the prophylaxis, percent prophylaxis, um, the, the different pieces of the bundle um, and the reliability um, or the compliance with the bundle. So you can see there's a very clear um, association between the um, cases of VTE on the decline as the um, reliability and compliance with the bundle. So just for fun and just for a way to kind of apply this to um, delayed diagnosis. Let me say the thing on the right, it's not real data. Please, it's not real data. Um, I was so worried about that. And so this is my mock-up, and it's, it's not really fancy here, but I'm just proposing that if you were to test four of those six test result processes that we talked about earlier, and yes, I always take it back to test results because it's the easiest one to think about, but if you were to take those items and let's say most providers are probably hitting those four items at a 40% reliability or compliance rate, um, and you started to actually use improvement science to start um, to improve the reliability um, of those pieces of the bundle, then potentially we could take that gray line, which is the estimated value um, proposed by the um, IOM report, and then kind of bring it down to the blue line. So this is just purely my way of saying, could we use imp improvement science and really think about those pieces that are pieces that relate to reliability compliance to actually decrease this rate of diagnostic error. And I think, you know, the panel has really, and, and all the folks that are chiming in here, there's not really good data. It's hard for us to really measure that gray line or the proposed blue line. And so the key is to kind of come together and think about what are these proxy measures. And, and, and as I mentioned before, maybe the proxy measure is the reliability. It's that percent of um, compliance with these pieces that we know can un unlock or mitigate these um, events that are happening. So it's just kind of a silly way of saying, can we use improvement science here to um, to help frontline providers? Thank you, Jennifer. I really appreciate something that we can ponder, and it's great that you uh, turned this into a visual. Kador, maybe I'll turn to you. You are often so good at saying, you know, improvement science can be applied. Um, any thoughts about that, particularly if folks are trying to even assess where their problems most reside. 
uh, I'm struck in this program that we do go back and forth because it's part of the picture between sort of cognitive issues uh, and judgment and decision, you know, making uh, and differential diagnosis. And then we're also talking about processes where information is there, uh, but it's just not being managed well and communicated in a, in a timely fashion. So in some ways, improvement science, you know, would have to get in gear in all these different directions. But any thoughts you might have about just that initial phase of even knowing what your biggest problems seem to be? Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it matters what the biggest problem is, uh, but that it may be worth you know starting somewhere, where a place where you think that there might be some diagnostic error occurring in your system, but wherever that place is, and you know at a at a very uh, micro system level. I mean, in a in a one, in a one physician provider practice, uh, you know, you could look at your, just as an example, you could look at your uh, colorectal cancer screening rates. You could see whether or not your, uh, uh, you know, with the time from a test result being acquired, say, in a different test and it being communicated to a patient, you can look for these sort of specific process uh, uh, failures that might be present or defects that might be present in the system and then start to apply you know, the model for improvement, plan to study act cycles to try to uh, continuously track the performance of your uh, physician group or yourself as an individual physician or practice and see if you can make some steady improvements to any one of a number of sub-processes that might be contributing to diagnostic delay or error. So, I, you know, the idea that you have to find the kind of the biggest source of error or defect, I think, is um, is potentially what um, stops us in our tracks. You know, because you know having the data systems to try to find the biggest source of potential um, error uh, in diagnosis uh, becomes really challenging to try to imagine how you might construct or do. But almost all of us as practicing clinicians can think about. Uh, 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 some aspect of the diagnostic process um, that we can think about, whether it's you know time to you know consideration or the depth of the differential diagnosis or the time to reporting a finding, uh, we can think about these things and we can start to measure them and we can start to at an individual level at a microsystem level make improvements and things that might uh, surprise us in terms of how uh, slow our response times are or where the defects might. Might lie. So yeah. I would Let start me with jump something in there for one second. Yeah. Thanks, yeah, Mark. Cater's right, but I think Jennifer nailed it. This is exactly what we need to do. We need to start measuring discrete things and applying what we know about improving processes. It shouldn't take two years to diagnose anemia, and that's kind of where we are right now. It shouldn't take seven visits to diagnose asthma, uh, and there have been examples of successful in applying this. We know that we're doing a better job with sepsis in many medical centers. Uh, we're doing a much better job in diagnosing cornicterus by applying a bundle. So we, we know that this works elsewhere. We know that it works in diagnosis, and we need to start applying this much more widely. Thank you very much. Uh, quick comment from uh, John here. Go ahead, John. Yeah, so uh, we wanted to tell you a little bit about the uh, MOOC that we're offering with Har- Harvard X. Uh, if you're not familiar, a MOOC is a uh, massive open online course, um, and we've developed one with uh, Harvard X um, about a practical improvement science in healthcare, a roadmap, roadmap for getting results. Um, it's going to drop on January 20th, 2016, and include some great faculty from IHI, including Dr. Don Goldman, Dave Williams, Don Berwick. Karen Baldoza and Amy Reed, and it is up to, or you can earn up to six CU. EUs, CEUs, Continuing Education uh, Units, uh, and it's for physicians, nurses, pharmacists, and quality professionals. So uh, visit IHI.org for more information. Thanks very much. All right, we're getting almost to the point where we're going to have wrap-up comments from everyone. I do want to acknowledge the interesting conversation going on in the chat. That's why we always invite you to download this uh, chat, which you're uh, um, offered that opportunity when you log off the program. It will also be posted to our website website. Susan, uh, before we do some wrap-up remarks, just one more question from the chat. Susan uh, Munter asked about the C-suite. 
So uh, far from our, or not necessarily in the same room where we're doing PDSA cycles, but what can the C-suite offer uh, to this space right now? And maybe uh, uh, Tom or Mark, I'll ask the two of you if, if that came up uh, in the IOM's uh, deliberations in the committee. Uh, I don't know if there's anything dedicated specifically around leadership, uh, but maybe, Mark, I'll start with you on that one. Thanks, Madge. Yeah, you know, we had a slide that went by really quickly on what healthcare organizations can do, but it strikes me that the most important thing is for them to actually realize that this is a problem. Most healthcare organizations do not have diagnostic error on their radar screen at all. So the number one thing I'd like to see is for every CEO to wake up tomorrow and say, hey, you know, this is something we need to pay attention to. Okay, well, that's a very good thought. All right, uh, let's go around the horn here. I'm going to start with Tom and just any parting words. Uh, I, I think uh, any hopes uh, in, in this space, you know, reports uh, are powerful and then they can sometimes sit around, uh, stake in the ground. Uh, now we got to make it live and a sort of call to action here. Uh, any, any thoughts that you might have going forward? As I mentioned, you know, I think communication and resolution programs are really an exciting development that are taking root, and they emphasize learning and safety and accountability. I think they're going to be a powerful way not only to reduce diagnostic errors, but to improve quality and safety overall, making sure we learn when care has not gone well. And that's an area where the C-suites are critical. They need to be the ones to really effectively communicate the, pay, the message throughout the organization that transparency, learning, accountability is a highly valued a cultural norm. All right. Thank you so much. And thanks, Tom Gallagher, for being part of the discussion today and for all your work uh, in this area. Uh, Cater, I'll turn to you next. Uh, you know, what? Any anything uh, you didn't get to say or anything you want to underscore or anything coming up that you hope we'll think about? Yeah, I think the, the, the point I was making towards the end here is where I'd like to close. I think, you know, all of us as practicing clinicians, those of you that are, I think have an opportunity uh, to look at the work that you're doing and say, is there somewhere in my work, is there something that I can make better about diagnosis? And I think there almost invariably, as you start to look at your work, there's, there'll be opportunities for making improvements happen. And whether it's in some of these established areas like anemia and uh, sepsis and other areas, or uh, simply in time to notification of your patients about a result, I think there's always opportunities to do that. And then finally, I just say, you know, as others have made uh, this point on the program, which is making sure that Patients are really, truly a partner in the diagnostic journey. They, they need to come back or, or hopefully can come back to you and, um, and help you to understand whether the uh, appropriate diagnosis was made. Um, and, and that's going to be an important thing for the continuing education and understanding of physicians as we try to uh, improve our diagnostic processes. Thanks so much, Kadar, for your help with the program today and for your thinking today, Kadar Mate. All right, Mark, some uh, parting shots from you. I'm sure you're hoping this isn't a report that just sort of sits around. (laughs) Far from it. We need to really get to work and translate these things into action. And I think the program today was very successful in discussing some of the steps we can take right now that would improve the quality and safety of diagnosis. And it also brought up some of the challenges that will be harder, like improving our electronic medical records and changing our culture. It's going to take a, a substantial culture change for patients to be truly accepted as full partners in the diagnostic process. And that will be a cultural change both for clinicians and for patients. Not every patient wants to go that route, so we have to honor their preferences and their values. And certainly there's a cultural change that needs to take place that will allow much better feedback and easier feedback as uh, Tom was alluding to, for one clinician to talk to another about errors that they found and observed. Okay. Thank you so much, Mark Graber, for all your work and help with this program today. Jennifer, you get the last word here, at least. Wow. <laughs> okay. I never get it at home, so <laughs> okay. this is kind of exciting. Okay. Um, so I, you know, I'm a frontline gal, and so I think that teams can start working tomorrow. And um, I would say get with your teams. 
start looking at your processes and ask yourself, would you trust your mother, your sister, or your child to go through the process without a drop ball? If the answer is no, then engage your team, start thinking, and use the great resources at IHI.org to start thinking about how to close those gaps. And um, if you need help, um, we are um, starting a virtual team-based offering with Professor um, Dr. Hardeep Singh um, on test results and delayed diagnosis, and we'd be excited for you to be on this journey with us to figure out how to make this a better system. All right. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you all, wonderful panelists, wonderful audience. I saw some folks I recognize, Gordy Schiff, who's been very involved in this uh, space, uh, a guest of mine on WHI on a previous show on, on diagnostic errors. I'm glad you were with us today as well, chiming in. I want to uh, remind you that we're now in December, gee, December 1. I guess nobody needed a reminder there, but it means our schedule is a little bit different this month because we do have our forum coming up, our national forum. So you should look out next for a special edition WIHI podcast that's going to go live on our website on December 17th. The podcast is going to capture remarks by Neil Baker, who's going to be talking at our 27th annual national forum in Orlando, just around the corner. If you've never heard Neil before, uh, talk about leadership and sort of finding the leader within your in for a real treat. Uh, he has some wonderful, wonderful um, ideas and sessions are always really uh, filled to capacity and it should be an interesting thing for us to capture. A reminder, you can download the slides, the chat, uh, anything we shared with you today on the screen. All of these items get posted to our website as well. Uh, and uh, we also do invite you again to fill out the survey so we know what uh, worked for you today and what we can continue to do better. Any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org, and you can always feel free to suggest future follow-on show topics to uh, our focus today. Lots of people help make WIHI possible. In addition to you, the audience, and our panelists today, John Gothier, Matt Morris, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Ruth James, Caroline Claxton, and Haley Ladd. Uh, and we always get little bits of help from just about every corner of the organization to pull a show together. That's why it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care, most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm I'm Madge Kaplan. Thanks for joining. Good day.